Hi, I'm Chris McBrien, a Gen Xer, and the pop culture from my generation is awesome. And I'm Yance Eaton, a millennial, and the pop culture from my generation is dope. Episode 81, Movies of the 1990s. Chris McBride here, along with Yance Eaton. Uh, we're going to be taking uh, a trip down memory lane a little bit, like we do every week, but we're going to be taking a look at 90s movies this week. We're going to get into that in a second. So if you love movies from the 90s, boy, this is going to be a great episode for you. Yancey Eaton, my co-host, my friend from Florida, what's going on? Um, I'm not trying to like instill bad karma on myself by mm-hmm. saying this, but uh, there is a major hurricane about to strike the eastern seaboard. And I'm a little relieved and selfishly so that it's not going to hit Florida. So uh, thoughts and prayers. And, you know, I, I hope everybody's safe along the Carolinas. Um, but very, very happy that it is not affecting Florida because I, I think I tweeted this a couple of days ago. Like I literally just finished like the last repairs from Hurricane Irma about a year ago. Yeah, that and, was something uh, so else. Yeah, it was quite something. And, um, you know, we, we had a little bit of a podcast hiatus and Caveman obviously came on and, and, and helped fill the void. But, um, man, hurricanes suck. They are... They are something else. It is. It, it's hard to escape from them. It's. I, I mean, what else to say? Like you guys know what a hurricane is. I'm not going to like mm-hmm. go too deep into it. But um, other than that, Chris, today was my uh, 12 year anniversary of working at my current job. Oh, and so, how's uh, that going? You've been there 12 years, so you must be. 12 you years. must be in bliss. You must be in in Absolutely. professional bliss. Yes. Living the dream. Uh, professional bliss is is about as accurate of a term as it can get. And uh, I've lived there my entire adult life, the same job, and uh, I'm about to turn 30. So all kinds of um existential crises like. Mm popping up in my life out of nowhere so it's it's a really fun time to be ants yeah i guess uh before we <laughs> before we get started i want to mention something I, I we like making friends around here i mentioned that almost every week and mm. i also like listening to other podcasts so I, I i found a new podcast that i had never heard before and i just connected with these guys on twitter and i started listening to their show <laughs> my god is it ever awesome so i just want to give them a shout out it's called everyone has a podcast so it's these two these three guys but especially the two guys brian and adam and and they're and they're canadian too adam's canadian anyway and so they do this podcast where they're just riffing on stuff but this adam guy the thing that got me about it was this adam guy decides that he wants to become like a rapper so he kind of like me like it was, he's like when you listen to the show it's kind of like you can't believe this guy's going to be a rapper right and like is he serious or not and so that he actually went and produced this whole rap song and it's called the power and they played it on their podcast that he actually produced and sang the whole thing himself I, I, I actually contacted these guys and I was like, guys, I listened to the to the show. I listened to your rap song. I almost drove my car off the road. I was laughing <laughs> so loud at this. It was so awesome. Yancy, you have to listen to it. I will send you a link to it. You got to give it a listen. Anybody out there, go and listen to Everyone Has a Podcast. And um, you got to find the episode where they do the rap song on it. It is, oh, I think it's like called the old school episode or something. Like he's he's like this white guy who does not sound like he should be rapping, and he's like singing about swimming pools full of wonton soup and lots of money and expensive barbecues and all this. It's just so funny. I just literally lost it. Anyway, I wanted to give them a show. Those guys are awesome. Um, one thing about the show, we've gotten. I'd say it's pretty fair to say that we've gotten sort of two consistent pieces of feedback over the years that we've been doing this podcast. Uh, the first is that we don't cover the decade of the '90s enough. The second piece of feedback is that WKRP in Cincinnati is the best TV show ever. 
Maybe that's just my opinion. I don't know. But I, hopefully people agree. But um, definitely we've been hearing almost, I think, Yancey, since the first episode that we don't cover the 90s enough, right? Correct. Like, people just keep on this. So, I mean, I was born in 1969, and I started watching TV and movies at a very young age. Like, I fell in love with, you know, TV and movies and stuff in the 70s, and I continued right through the 80s. Unfortunately for me, when I got to the 90s, I basically spent that entire decade just going back and watching stuff that I liked from the 70s and 80s. It might be sad, but it's true. And then that carried through to the to this 90s day. Yes. and the 2000s. <laughs> it, it is, and I just keep repeating. I'm like, I'm, I'm, like, I'm on repeat. Exactly. <laughs> and for you, Yancey, I think, you know, you being born in the late 80s, you know, you basically grew up watching TV and movies from sort of 2000 on. Mostly, Correct. right? So Mostly, as, yeah. as a result, whenever we do these podcasts, we tend to neglect the 90s, you know, as a decade. And we hear about it, let me tell you. And we don't mean to. It's not like we hate the 90s or anything. It's just the matter of circumstances, I think, of both of us. We tend to miss out on talking about it. And it's like the 90s are like a black hole for us. You know, mm-hmm. it falls right in between our generational experiences. Like I say, it tends to get overlooked. So we thought we would take the opportunity uh, from time to time going forward to dedicate specific episodes just to the 90s. So this show, we're going to take a look at movies from the 90s. And really, who better to join us than our old friend and regular guest on the podcast, Caveman himself. That's our affectionate nickname for him. Caveman, Derek Myers. Derek, welcome back to the show, my good friend. How are you? I'm doing yeah. great, Chris. Thanks for having me back, Yancey. Oh, man, Congratulations it. on 12 years having your job. Same job. Good job, buddy. Thank you. Uh, and uh, yeah, thanks for having me back. No problem. Anything, what's going on in the, in the world of pop culture for you? Anything new and you want to report on? Yeah, sure. A couple a of quick things. Um, you guys did a, a show on books last week. So mm-hmm. uh, I'm going to say that uh, I just actually finished reading. I, I Like Yancey, I, I read quite a bit and uh, I'm always looking for new New books. I'm a big fan of the fantasy and science fiction genres. Shocker, I know. Um, I just finished reading the book American Gods by Neil Gaiman. Uh, Neil Gaiman is an author who uh, cut his teeth in comic books. Uh, He created a series called Sandman, which was very popular. The TV show Lucifer uh, is based on Neil Gaiman's intellectual property. Um, Anyway, this book is uh, uh, very well-renowned. It's actually been uh, turned into a television series. They're in the process, I believe, of shooting season two right now. But I read the book finally after uh, a lot of prodding, and I really enjoyed it. It's... uh, you know, it's a 600-page uh, beefy kind of book. Uh, I thought it maybe ran a little too long. There was so I sort of dragged at the end, but uh, I went and I watched season one of the show and loved it. So I don't think it's for everybody, but if you're uh, if you're a comic book fan, if you're a Neil Gaiman fan, if you're into that sort of uh, fantasy sort of uh, you know gods walking the earth kind of thing. It, it was pretty decent, so nice. uh, take a look. And uh, Chris, you're yes. gonna love this. So, oh yeah. Well. Uh, Again, don't want to surprise anybody, but I'm a big comic book nerd. Like, I have a comic book collection that's I got about have about six or seven thousand comic books in my collection. I've been doing this for thirty plus years. Can I ask you a question regarding your comic? If you have six or seven thousand comic books, do you have any Richie Rich comic books? You know, I thought about picking some up, and then I thought, (laughs) no. Why would I do that? <laughs> he has 7,000 comic books, Chris, and not a single Richie Rich. That is a shot at you like you've, oh, like I you've know. never seen before. Oh, what a you're, burn. you're telling me. Oh, that's a big burn. Oh. So I, anyway, I, 
I have this massive collection, and I've, I'm trying to find very select issues. And so I have a very short list that I've been looking for for a very long time. And I was going to a buddy's place on the weekend, and there was a flea market on the way. And I knew that they often sell comic books there, so I decided to stop. And sure enough, there were comic book vendors. I couldn't find what I wanted, but I, you know, I got to talk to some interesting people about comic books. While I was there, I decided to check with the flea market. And in one of the booths, nice. the guy was selling Star Wars memorabilia Ooh. from – from the ages, from the 1970s right up to oh, like today. Nice. And I got my hands on a board game called Star Wars Escape from Death Star. Oh, I, I remember that game. It, it goes out I, like it goes out like a spokes of a wheel, and you got to try and get out. Yes, I know that one. Yes, I, yes, yes, I know it. I couldn't believe oh, yeah. that I found this game. I got it for ten bucks. Nice. It has pieces. The box, the instruction, and now it's beat up. Don't get me wrong, because I went online and I, before I bought it, I'm like, I wonder what it's worth. And a brand new mint condition copy goes for about a hundred bucks. The guy wanted ten bucks. I'm like, sold. Here it is. I like, I grabbed it and took off because I think maybe he was going to try and charge me more money for it when he realized it was only ten bucks. Mm-hmm. So I can't wait to play this game. It had, and it had. When I bought little- it. I thought. He- yeah, it had the little colorful pieces, and then you had, like, the characters. Like, they had, like, green, and, like, you know, they were, like, monochromatic colors. And if I remember yep. correctly, there was a spinner with R2-D2 on it. Yep. Yes. And, and on the cover of the box, it has some of the characters from the movies, like, still images from the movies. Yep. And R2-D2 is spelled A-R-T-O-O-D-E-T-O-O, and C-3PO is S-E-E. T H R E E P I O. Instead oh, yeah. of the actual letters and numbers, they spelled it out. Phonetically, you think, yeah. Whoever whoever was making this game at when they made it, they had probably never seen the movie because the game was probably commissioned before the movie actually was released. So I love finding these things like this where this is right out of my childhood. I never owned this game, but a few of my friends did, and when I saw it, I was ecstatic and I couldn't wait to drop ten bucks and pick up this piece of my childhood okay so two things about it number one i actually i remember back then seeing their names r2d2 and c3po being spelled out phonetically i've seen that more than once that's not the first time and that's number one number two you and i do not live that far from each other so when would you like to uh, we're gonna get out this you gonna when are we gonna have me down for a night i'll come down we'll have some beers and we'll play escape from the death star so just I love it we're love doing it. this I'm, I'm in this is no no, yep. no question um, yeah, so you're welcome to join us but uh it's it's uh, a long drive for uh a little tabletop adventure. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I was I just going to say, I'm, I'm still here, guys. <laughs> <laughs> if you if you would like to get on a plane and come up to Canada and join us, we have great beer here. Um, but uh, uh, I, I don't think, Cape and you and I haven't got together since last year's concert that we went to see ZZ Top. So it's time that yes, we got together. Good. We also spent a whole night doing a commentary on Caddyshack, if you remember that. We did a whole That's hour right. and a half long commentary on Caddyshack. Um, this is the kinds of things we do together. And the next time we get together, we are going to play the escape from the death star. It's going to be awesome. I tell you. Uh, but in the meantime, what do you say we, uh, we get started on, uh, on tonight's episode? Are you guys game? Absolutely. All right, let's, let's hit it. it. Here we go. Uh, like do millennials write in each other's like school yearbooks? Do you even have yes. yearbooks? You think we're like monsters or something? Yes, of course. Oh man, you smell like fish heads. I can't remember. I don't know if it's A sharp or B flat. Kids suck. Young prepubescent boys. I'll show you a tremor. That's my mom's favorite piece. She's a mama. She's Mama Fridelli. I'm basically a sub- like you know a celebrity and uh, kind of a big deal. <laughs> Holy sh. Okay, so like I mentioned at the top, we're going to be covering movies from the 1990s. So there's a lot of things to cover. We're not going to do a typical uh, top five list. I just want like to, to talk about sort of the decade. We'll start with the decade as a whole. And I'm just wondering, 
what is your overall impression of the 90s as a decade of film? Because for me, like this, how can I say this? The 70s for me had a had a feel in regard to movies. You know, like, I mean, there was, if you look at the 70s, there was the whole, you know, divocation of the director and the move away from the old studio system. You had movies like Easy Rider, you know, they became these big hits. The directors like Dennis Hopper suddenly found themselves at the forefront of Hollywood. There were all these disaster films like The Poseidon Adventure, The Towering Inferno and Airport and stuff like that. And then you also had the advent of the blockbuster film with Jaws and Star Wars. And then the 80s to me had a real feel as well because there was a big shift toward sort of teenagers in film. You know, John Hughes led the pack. There were lots of comedies. And, you know, I, to me, I'm not really sure if if the 90s has a feel. I, what do you guys think? Like, what do you think of the themes and stuff? I mean, uh, K-Ben, why don't we start with you? Um, but do the 90s movies overall have a quote-unquote feel to them? And if so, what do you think it is? So... I agree with you to a certain extent. Uh, before the podcast, I actually reached out to a few of my peers because uh, I'm a few years younger than you, Chris. Like I, I uh, was born in 74. So in 1990, I was 16. Like that was when I started, um, you know, really becoming aware of pop culture and, mm-hmm. and developing tastes. What do you like? What do you not like? And I went away to university in 93. So like 93 to 97, uh, you know, I'm in my early 20s and it's a time in your life when you're very impressionable on a lot of things. And this was me. I was, you know, right in the 90s. And so I asked a lot of my friends today, like, what do you think? What do you think? And the the overwhelming response that and I agree with was the 90s almost feels like a forgotten decade or an overlooked decade when it comes to movies initially. And exactly like you said, the 70s has a very distinct style. The 80s movies have very distinct style. And then even in like today in the 2000s and the 2010s, the, the movies have distinct styles and certain genres are big. Like, uh, But the 90s, on first glance, is almost like, meh, it came, it went, whatever. But the more I started to think about it, the more I felt that you can't, uh, you can't overlook or, or you shouldn't forget that the 90s movies, a lot of it was – sort of the the rise of the independent movie. It was a generation of kids who grew up with camcorders and portable videotapes. And it was the age when amateurs could become filmmakers and that that, you know, golden ring of well, only the best of the best of the elite of the elite could ever get here because the studios will never see them. You had people who were like, um, you know, young upcoming filmmakers. It's like I didn't go to film school. I went to films. And I, I believe that's something Quentin Tarantino has said on more than one occasion. And he's a great example. And I'm sure we're going to talk about him a little bit tonight. It was, you know, this opportunity for filmmakers to make movies, real passion projects from a different perspective. It wasn't the the corporation. It wasn't the studio. It wasn't this big conglomerate machine pushing out movies. You had these opportunities for these small independent filmmakers to, to make these movies and bring them to film festivals and, and you know, put them into in front of people who could help them get distribution. And it launched the career in the 90s of, of a lot of directors that did not take what up until then was a traditional path into the, the field of film. I'm going to just make a note of this in terms of independent films, and we'll come back and get into that a little bit more in depth because I think you make a good point. That is one of the the, the most prevalent things that came out of the 90s for me. Um, but before we get to that, Yancey, um, so you were obviously very young in the 90s, you know, but like when I think back, 
you know, for I was young in the 70s. Like for me, like being seven, eight, nine years old, that was the 70s for me. But I was like totally into movies at that age. I just loved pop culture at that age. And I'm just wondering, like, from your perspective, kind of growing up as a really young kid in the 90s and then looking back on it, does do the 90s have a quote unquote feel in terms of movies? What's your take on that? Well, I think Caveman, um, he articulated pretty nicely. The one thing that I was going to say was the same thing that he made uh, a point of, which is totally unoriginal to just piggyback off what the first person said and just run with it. Um, <laughs> like you, you just cherry pick the smart things that he said and then take it as your own. Um, <laughs> this was the first generation that we saw where, um, like he said, there was more of a democratization of people making films. Right. And you can see this by how diverse they are. You can Google any list of like best 90s movies or best movies of the 90s. And you see such a wide range of types of movies. You have like really serious movies like a, say like a Goodwill Hunting or or a Schindler's List, you know, really, really serious, critically acclaimed movies. But then you also see, like, the advent of super niche comedies, like, um, you know, really, really specific comedies. Even the bad, quote-unquote, bad movies are movies that I really, really enjoyed. Like, uh, some of my favorite bad movies of all time are, like, um, Space Jam or Ace Ventura. Those are movies that, like, yeah, they, you could kind of see, like, a pathway to those being, like, a, like, like an airplane type movie of, like, the 70s and the 80s. But they were their own thing. They were super, super specific. And this is, like, I think the first time where we really saw all these different uh, movie companies and production companies taking risks on uh, something that didn't have exactly mass appeal. You know what I mean? They found that, like, hey, this can be lucrative. We can make uh, movies on a relatively cheap budget and actually start funding more projects as opposed to putting all of our eggs in, you know, a handful of perver. Uh, proverbial baskets and just hoping to strike it big on like these huge franchises you know um there's just so many different styles of movie it's really hard to peg down like what the major like overarching thing was like you have movies like fight club and like the sixth sense and the science of the lambs you know really really dark like crazy movies that just stick with you and are are haunting and just you know but then you also have like movies that are just pure entertainment like you you have like the jurassic parks and like the forest gums where i'm not sure if they're trying to say anything you know super groundbreaking or or, or push any type of social agenda. They're just really interesting, like fun to watch movies that you don't necessarily have to get a lot out of. So um, as far as like overarching themes, I don't really think there was one. I think it was just the first time that we saw uh, more people getting involved with it. And um, to piggyback off of that, I think we're going to start seeing like a, a new revival in movies within like the next 10 to 15 years. Whenever we start seeing all these kids who were internet native from the time they grew up, you know, they had smartphones when they were five or six years old. They're always around a camera every ounce of their life has always been recorded and you're going to start seeing people who are always aware that they are being recorded and that they're being watched and the, almost like the calculated way that they show themselves you're going to see like this completely different genre of of pop culture come out that's going to be unlike anything we have ever seen before like um you know what we consider an amateur nowadays um <laughs> like these kids are going to be coming out basically like with more polished and more camera ready and with bigger ideas and knowing how to get attention and having done so much trial and error by the time they were even in high school. You know what I mean? I think it's just going to be really, really interesting. Not all of it's going to be great, but um, I'm, I'm kind of curious to see where it goes from there. Well, then instead of taking a look at the, you know, the nineties as an overall, you know, sort of feel, what about like, we've talked before on this podcast about different genres of films. You know, we talked about our favorite horror movies and our favorite comedies, and our favorite romantic comedies and all that kind of stuff. Um, so I'm just curious, do you think there were any genres of movies that maybe sort of had their advent in the decade or thrived in the decade or um, did any genres maybe kind of disappear? You know, and I think uh, I'll, I'll jump in first. Yeah. Real quick, I uh -huh. um, definitely animated movies. So like you remember, it's good, uh, yep. good point. This was the 90s. This is whenever Disney made their comeback. Right. The Lion King, Aladdin, 
um, Toy and, Story and Toy computer Story. computer generated Contents. stuff, you know. Yeah, like you know, Toy Story was the first completely computer yeah. animated film, and you know, all three of the movies in that franchise are some of the most critically acclaimed movies of all time. Like, how often is it that you see like an entire trilogy that everybody just thinks top to bottom is great? You know, that one movie doesn't take away from the others. Um, the that original Star Wars too, trilogy. I was just gonna say <laughs> Star Wars. <laughs> well, Star Wars. True. But also, but think about <laughs> that. That's a small a small project that I may have overlooked, but. Yeah. It's, um, it's also, think about yeah. right? If that's your comparison, if that's your measuring stick, and that's the only thing you measure up to, that's yeah. high praise. Definitely, yeah, that is high praise. But the the other genre being like, um, I, I think serious horror movies, like actually, um, well done productions. Like, think about this. Like, Silence of the Lambs was up for like Best Picture. Like, I'm pretty sure it was one of the first, if not the very first, to be nominated for like, you know, like basically like the movie of the year kind of thing. I, I know that's not the exact title yeah, of the it won of Best the Picture award, in '93. Yeah. Or, yeah, exactly. One best picture. Thank you, Chris. So, like, I, I think those different types of, like, subsets that aren't necessarily mainstream, um, they, they started getting a little bit more clout, both critically and, like, more widespread commercial success. Um, what do you think, Caveman? Uh, I'll, I'll sort of tackle that in reverse order. You're absolutely right. So I had a bunch of notes written down, and uh, horror movies was on there because – uh, from 1996 to 2000, I worked at Blockbuster Video. And for all you young kids out there, we're talking video cassette tapes that you had to go to the store, rent, return when you were done, make sure you rewind, be kind, rewind. And if you went to the store and all the copies were out, that was too bad. You had to wait till the next day. It was no downloading, streaming, on demand, in your pocket whenever you need it. It was old school video cassettes. So for – you know, four to five years in the late 90s, I was right in the thick of the movie industry, uh, you know, obviously as a consumer and as a proprietor of, of pushing those those movies to other people. But I remember when in 96, when Scream came out, it was not originally received very well in the theater because people, like horror genre was sort of dead. It was seen as like over the top, super slasher films, excessive blood, excessive gore. Don't take it seriously. And then... Uh, Wes Craven comes out with with Scream, and he casts Drew Barrymore and and Nev Campbell and a few other you know relatively popular uh, uh, actors at the time, and people are like, oh, well, let's give this a try. And he sort of reinvented, uh, you know, turbocharged the horror genre again. He he brought life back to it. And I mean, given that uh, his history with the genre, it was pleasant to see like here's a guy who isn't just a one trick pony. He's he's been watching what's going on in the world and pop culture. And he's reinvented, reinvented, reinvigorated this genre that that he helped create in the first place. Um, so, I mean, I'm not a big fan of horror movies, but Scream was fantastic, and what it did for that genre is is notable. And that yeah. happened in the late '90s. I agree. And in just building on that, in terms of horror movies, if you go back in time to that that time around '96, you know, leading up to then, the horror movie genre had kind of ran its course. Like it Absolutely. had those all those what umpteen sequels of Friday the Thirteenth. There was all those like dozens of those Freddy Krueger movies that came out. And just when it seemed like the horror genre was over and dead, along comes Scream. And really, it flipped the genre on its head because it played with the audience's expectations of typical horror movies, right? So definitely, yeah, that's a really good point. So so I, you could say that the 90s were a period when horror movies were kind of reinvented, you know? For so sure. I think that, that's, a, sure. that's a good one. What about... Um, I've, because I love talking about comedies and because I've always said, you know, for me... Comedies were like at their peak in the 70s and 80s. Um, what did you think about uh, comedy films in the 90s? Uh, K-Ban, we'll start with you. Uh, of all the genres we're going to talk about, 
90s comedies are probably is probably the genre I I know the least about. Uh, I, I mean, I love comedies, but I, the 90s comedies didn't really speak to me. I, I didn't really care for, I guess, the kind of humor that was funny at the time. And and so, like, Seinfeld was a very popular television show. When it was on in its initial run, I, I didn't get it. And maybe I was just too young. Maybe I couldn't identify with the characters. I didn't enjoy it that much. And same with Friends. When it was first on in its early season, I didn't really, didn't really click with me. And so when you had movies like... Uh, you know Billy Madison and and uh, uh, Tommy. Well, Tommy Boy is exception. I love Tommy Boy, but you get some of these sort of stupid comedies that came out in the in the '90s, the early and mid '90s, especially. They they just they didn't speak to me. Ace Ventura, like I just I couldn't get into it. Didn't really care for it. it to me, it almost I almost felt like it hurt the genre. I I, agree, I agree with you 100. I strongly believe that the 1990s were the death of the comedy. Like I said, the 70s and 80s were rampant with comedies and they died off in the 90s other than maybe like I was talking to my wife about this and she's like, well, what about American Pie? OK, well, maybe that. I mean, I didn't particularly care for the movie, but um, other than but that, that was like like what, 98, nine, I don't have the date of that one in front of me, but that was the definitely the late 90s. 99. It was right at the end of the decade. Yeah. And, and that was that was sort of the first comedy that I can recall. Well, that and Austin Powers were sort of the only comedies in the nineties that I, I felt I could really get into that. I enjoyed that. I wanted to see again, that I continue to watch over and over. And I think with American pie, I wasn't that much older than those characters. So I think it, it was easier for me to relate to those stories. Not that I did some of the crazy things that they did, but I identified more with American Pie than I ever did with Billy Madison or Ace Ventura or anything else that was coming out in the early 90s. The only one that stood out for me from the 90s because it was kind of reminiscent of the 70s and 80s type comedies was Happy Gilmore because it was eminently rewatchable. I could watch that over and over again and it had a kind of a familiarity to it and it was a little bit off kilter and kind of goofy. But a lot of the other comedies in the 90s, I just didn't like. Maybe Groundhog Day. You know, I was I was just going to counter with a, a couple movies. Okay? Please do. Just so yeah. you guys can like refresh your memories. Okay. The one the one point I'll make about comedies in the 90s, and uh, I'm not saying this just to be contrarian uh, from you guys' viewpoints, but Chris, you and I, we've reviewed several um, comedies from you know back in the day, the 70s, 80s, and stuff. Mm-hmm. We, did, uh, we did Airplane, and what were some of the other ones? Blazing um, Saddles. Oh, Blazing yeah. Saddles. Thank you. Okay. I'm not saying that those movies were not funny. They were funny, and I did enjoy them. Um, I, I think from like an overall like tone and how they actually present these comedies, the a lot of the comedies from the 90s actually feels like more realistic movies. Like think of Office Space. Think about the interactions between them. It's a comedy, but it's not like an overt like punchline, punchline. Here's a prop. You know, it's not so overt, like, you know, just purely scripted comedy. It's more relational. And you actually think about people like in a real sense, like. Um, like what's a better I'm trying to think of like a, even a, a different example like um, like there's something about Mary or like the big Lebowski those aren't something that you would they wouldn't be your first inkling of like oh a comedy but like it's more realistic as far as like the interactions between people like um, I mean you guys are really missing out on like a lot of good movies like um, My Cousin Vinny or Friday or um, I'm trying to think of another one or like uh, like 10 Things I Hate About You or The Wedding Singer like I, there's there's so many there and like I said they're they're more kind of like rom com like actual interrelational like real people interacting with real stuff as opposed to just like this is a movie where people say funny things and do funny things it's more of like the reality show genre kind of made its way into the comedies and I mean are, are you guys you know picking up what I'm putting down here at all or does that not make any sense at all No I understand what you're saying but but I just I just believe that the the quote unquote 
sort of comedy genre just did not it let's just say it did not thrive in the 90s and it didn't necessarily uh thrive into the 2000s either i still think it's a bit of a lost art art form i really do and i know that's me stuck in the past but i believe that the true movie comedy is a lost art form and it, and it started to die in the 90s and it hasn't made it come back yet so what, maybe I've, maybe look at it a little bit differently please. um I, I think that perhaps if we look, if we, you know, we go back to 10 minutes ago when we were just talking about the reinvention of the horror film, maybe that's what's happened in the 90s and we just sort of missed it was the traditional comedy from, if you look at sort of the 80s and, and late 70s as a quote traditional comedy, maybe by the 90s, to Yancey's point, you look at what else was going on in the world and pop culture and other mediums and what was classified as comedy has changed because humor changes uh, because it's often con- contextual to what's going on in the world around you. And maybe, you know, um, Yancey sees it better than we do because he's coming at it from a, a, a you know, a very different perspective. And Yancey, in all fairness, every movie you just named, I've seen all of them and mm-hmm. enjoyed most of them, but not haha laugh out loud comedies. And my cousin Vinny's a great example. I watched, I literally watched it about a week ago because it had been a long time and I thoroughly enjoyed it. But I don't yeah. think I actually laughed out loud once. And to me, that wouldn't classify as a comedy to me. If I'm not laughing, I, I, I have a hard time classifying it as comedy. That's but funny. maybe that's yeah. just because of the way I classify it. In my mind, a comedy is like, just use it, like you said, joke, 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 punchline, prop, guy falls down, gets hit with a pie, joke, joke, joke. Like that to me is funny. Yeah. Um, the, the one thing I'll add, um, I don't want to like beat this horse too much, but – I think I come at it differently just because, and, you know, Chris and I talked about this just ad nauseum on, on past shows is um, I feel like a lot of the comedy from the 60s, 70s, the 80s, I to me personally, I struggle with finding that stuff funny just because um, societally, like there's many things that were funny back then that are not funny now. And I've kind of been, um, you know, like I, I've been programmed to to not think that those things are funny. And, you know, maybe that is like a, a flaw to some sort of political correctness is, um, you know, everything should be funny. You know, some of the. Um, is it George Carlin who makes like the joke where he talks like he literally goes for the the lowest common possible denominator um, and like he basically makes a joke about starving kids in Africa. Right. And everybody says like, oh, you're not supposed to do that. You're sub- only supposed to, um, you know, you're, you're supposed to attack people from above. You're supposed to attack people of power. That's what comedy is. And like he really challenged that notion by saying, like, um, you know, I'm going to make fun of everything. Um, do you guys think there's something to that where it's like, you know, I you know, delirious is funny, but delirious is very problematic. And if oh, if it Eddie is Murphy, so of its time, oh, it, yeah. we we just talked about this, and we said you could absolutely not show that on TV today. It is so dated and inappropriate based on today's standards. And if you look at it with today's lens, it is so wrong for so many reasons. But yeah. as a youngster, I can remember watching it, laughing my ass off hundreds of times repeating the jokes verbatim and thinking this is the funniest thing that it's ever been invented but you look at it now and you're just like oh my god so so do you guys think that that's the main constraint is simply that i mean like there you, you're you're being asked as a comedian basically to kind of toe the line a little bit more and there's so many more topics that are you know off bounds and you know you can basically commit you know career suicide by making you know basically like making jokes at like the wrong demographic or the wrong group or you know somebody that was marginalized throughout history like that's that's dangerous you know what I mean? I will, Maybe there's something to be said about that i will disagree with that and i and i will disagree with that by saying two words south park i think you know trey parker and matt stone prove that you can make fun of everything and nothing is off bounds if you do it properly if you do it well if you do it with an unbelievable comic talent that they had 
I just think that there wasn't a lot of really talented comedians in the 90s that were able to pull it off. You're right. Times changed. If you, you know, if you, and we've talked about this before on the podcast, lots of antsy, you know, times have changed. You go back and watch Animal House. You're like, you, you can't laugh at that stuff. That's like horrific. You know what I mean? But so because times have changed. So you're right. A lot more things are off bounds. But I think, you know, something like South Park comes along and says, hey, you know, we're going to challenge the notions of what is off bounds and what isn't. We're going to make fun of everything. And they just do it in such a funny way that I, I literally, I don't think I've ever laughed any more in my life than I've laughed at South Park. So, and, and this is from somebody but, who loves the seventies and eighties. But you just, but you just said though, that I, I didn't think that there were that many good uh, comedians in the nineties that could pull it off. So like, you're basically saying that like an entire generation is not funny. Like yep. that can't be it. There are other factors at play as opposed mm-hmm. to like uh, the funny gene skipped an entire generation. Like there's not, a lot a, not enough, you know, not <laughs> enough Canadians making movies in the nineties, I guess it must've been what it was. Right. Um, another thing I wanted that I just was thinking about, you know, we talked about horror movies and comedies and I mentioned earlier that the seventies w- was as a decade had a lot of disaster movies, but we saw a lot of that going on in the nineties too. Cause I don't know if it was because of the, the impending Y2K, if you remember back to that time, but as it got near the end of the decade, there was a whole bunch of disaster movies that came out, probably reflecting the angst of the general public because of Y2K. I don't know. I haven't really explored that, but I mean, you had movies like Armageddon and Independence Day and Deep Impact and even Godzilla that kind of reflected the time. So I think the disaster movie is one that kind of reared its head again in the nineties, right? Yeah, I'll give you that. I, I think it even you'd have to almost broaden it a bit. It's more the the big budget action, you know, blockbuster kind of movie sort of had a comeback. It almost felt like through the mid '90s there were a lot of great movies, but there were, in, from my recollection, not as many big. We'll call them like spectacle event movies. Uh, and then you had, you know, Independence Day. You had Armageddon. You had Men in Black. You, you like suddenly you had these like every summer. What's the big movie? It's coming out on the July 4th weekend. What is it? And it was something huge, $100 million budget and explosions. And you're not winning any performance Oscars for those movies. Those movies are pure entertainment. You buy your popcorn and you sit down and you enjoy the movie and you take it for what it is and you love it. And I would say that it's more disaster movies lend themselves to that kind of storytelling. So I think that's probably, in in my mind, why you see that more, especially towards the end of the 90s. I'm just thinking, Yancey, something that you also you mentioned, and kind of we brought this up before in the podcast about how like times change and things, you know, we progress as a society. I will right. say that the 90s was definitely groundbreaking because mm-hmm. you saw a breakthrough, especially for black filmmakers like John Singleton's Boys in the Hood, Spike Lee's movies. But there was also the emergence of like LGBT films like The Birdcage and Boys Don't Cry. So I think the 90s was quite groundbreaking from a film perspective. Maybe mm-hmm. some of it has to do with the independent films, which we'll, like I say, we'll, we'll come back to in a second. But uh, but I, I, I think of the 90s as groundbreaking. I will give it that. Do uh, you agree with that, Yancey? I agree with that, Chris, and I, I not to jump around too much, but like I do like your point that you were talking about. Like, um, you've seen a lot of disaster movies. Like, just to mention a couple more, uh, Waterworld, yeah. which was a flop, but oh, that's yeah. you know that's that's post apocalyptic. Yep. Uh, the Perfect Storm, the production was in like the end of the nineties. I think it was actually released in two thousand, but that's another example. You had Twister. Um, Twister's you had, a good one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You mentioned yeah. like Deep Impact. There were a lot of movies that played on, um, you know, even The Matrix. Like, take a shot. Yancey mentions The Matrix. There are so <laughs> many of these. There are so many of these movies where it, it does reference, you know, the fact that okay, all of a sudden um, technology has exploded. Okay, um, we we used to not have the internet, and now we have the internet, and uh, mankind, you know, goes through thousands and thousands of years of of slowly. And incrementally improving things to where all of a sudden we have every piece of information ever known to humankind at our fingertips all the time. And instead of us being given decades and even hundreds of years to slowly assimilate to that, um, it was thrust 
onto us basically overnight, right? So you have the, the, the fear of technology. You have um, all of a sudden global warming being moved into the mainstream, and that's why you do see so many of those, um, you know, like the Deep Impact type movies or the Twister type movies, you know, all of a sudden like rampant hurricanes and, and all these things. You, you have that. And then, of course, like the Y2K scare, which is really just another uh, another indictment on people not being sure about artificial intelligence and technology and and, you know, we're, we're being thrust into this future that we really didn't have much of a say in. And all of a sudden it was just here overnight and there was no acclimation period whatsoever. So I think like, you know, the if you went off sheer number, I don't have like a list in front of me or anything, but just went off the sheer number of actual, you know, uh, disaster type post-apocalyptic, like end of the world scenarios. I think you'd see like a huge spike on the bar graph in between like the mid 90s heading right up to like 2000. And then after Y2K, obviously, all of a sudden that wasn't in vogue anymore. But um, same thing with, uh, you know, December 21st, 2012, the day that, you know, the Mayan calendar, everybody thought that the world was going to end. Uh, coincidentally, that's the day my nephew was born. Um, <laughs> maybe that'd be a cool story to, for him to tell his girlfriends or whatever. But, um, you know, we, we saw another spiking in those same types of like end of world scenarios they weren't very good movies but you know that summer of 2011 the the summer of 2012 you started seeing those pop back up so it's always like a reaction to like whatever everybody's talking about or what the general feel or you know the most prevalent fear of the time is i think you see more and more movies being pushed out that kind of fills that need for people whether they want it or not now, Caveman, you mentioned earlier about independent films. You want to come back and, and talk a little bit about that? Because I think of the 90s, too. The, the, one of the first things I think about is sort of the advent and sort of the dominance of the independent film. So any yeah. thoughts on that? Yeah. So I, I'm, I'll, I want to talk about that, but I want to sort of sidestep into it. So mm. uh, in the course of in, – in less than a month, uh, in 1994, between mid-October and mid-November, three – Huge movies were released. Well, three great movies were released uh, that if I made a list of my top 10 or top 20 favorite movies, these ones always make the list. Uh, two of them make my top five every time. In October 94, we got Pulp Fiction and Shawshank Redemption released on the same day. Mm -hmm. And then less than a month later, we had the independent film Clerks by Kevin Smith released. Now, again, as someone who worked a lot of years at Blockbuster Video, the film Clerks spoke to me in a way that really no movie had ever spoken to me before. This was literally me and my friends on the camera, on the screen, and you had the characters having conversations about Star Wars and Jaws and all sorts of crazy things. And, and it's like you're watching it going – that's us. We've had that conversation. We've had a conversation just like that. And really, for me, Clerks and Pulp Fiction are are sort of the measuring stick that I, I use when I'm talking about a lot of movies from the 90s. These are two movies that uh, I believe they're actually both produced by Miramax, if I remember correctly. Yes. On relatively small budgets, like Kevin Smith's Clerks was made on a total shoestring budget. Under the, under, under shot, 30 grand or something. Yeah, right? it was shot in black and white. He did. Yep. Yeah, again, it's if you want to know more about it. Take a look, but I, I imagine half your listeners are probably Kevin Smith fans and have probably gone down that road, so I won't waste their time right now. Uh, and Quentin Tarantino, obviously, is you know one of the one of today's great filmmakers. He's he's hugely popular, famous. Pulp Fiction was his second film after, or his second big film after Reservoir Dogs. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I love so much about both Clerks and Pulp Fiction, besides the fact that they're not like your typical studio film, is both of these movies are dialogue-driven movies. Oh, yeah. Big time. In Pulp Fiction, the performances are outstanding, and they got nominated for awards up and down, as it rightly deserved. But it's the script, but yeah. But both, both Clerks and Pulp Fiction are movies that I have dubbed the audio onto a cassette, a CD, uh, you know, ripped it onto a podcast, whatever, and, and listened to it as like a radio play, 
even though I'm not seeing the visual components of these movies. Now, in all fairness, I've seen both of these movies so many times. Uh, you know, in my mind, I'm seeing the scenes. But both of these movies, the the dialogue is so great. It's so realistic. It's so perfect that these movies are carried by the script, by the dialogue. And and I'm going to repeat what I said earlier. Quentin Tarantino said, I didn't go to film school. I went to films. And he listened to people. And, and he, he, you know, and Kevin Smith has basically said the same kind of thing. I wanted the characters to sound like real people. And, and these movies were both excellent examples of this. Um, so anyway, that, that's my little rant on that. I, um, I agree with you 100% on both those movies. I love both those movies. I saw both those movies in the theater uh, when they when they came out. Pulp Fiction, definitely. In terms of the dialogue, I think that Tarantino really sort of cut his, obviously cut his teeth in his first movie in Reservoir Dogs. The opening scene of Reservoir Dogs, all the guys sitting around a table discussing whether or not they should tip and why tipping should be acceptable or not acceptable in society. You're watching that going, what am I watching? Like, what am I watching? It's just this unbelievable dialogue as the camera just goes around the table. And it's just everybody having a dialogue about this. And unbelievable. Oh, yeah. No, I definitely agree. I'm curious, Yancey. um, You've obviously seen Pulp Fiction and Clerks. Have you seen both those movies? I'm assuming you have, but have you? Um, I've only seen parts of Clerks, but I've definitely seen Pulp Fiction. Pulp Fiction, obviously. Yeah, Pulp Fiction is one of the best. It's one. Of, I think it's one of the best American films of all time. Um, mm-hmm. It was definitely the best film of the 90s for me. Um, and really, the success of Pulp Fiction really paved the way for those independent movies of the decade that we talked about. Miramax, you mentioned, uh, came in, was basically, in a, you know, this, it, it, it was an independent movie-making studio. And it suddenly jumped to the forefront of Hollywood beca- because of, like, Clerks and, you know, and, and Pulp Fiction. But other independent films were huge, too. Like, when you think of, like, ones that I personally like, like Being John Malkovich, and El, yep. Miri- El Miriachi. Remember, El Miriachi was so, and True Romance, and even movies like Before Sunrise and Goodwill Hunting and Days and Confused. They're all the independent movies that they were made outside the traditional Hollywood system. And really, if you think about it, in 1996, with the Oscars, back then, Yancey, they only had five nominees for Best Picture, right? Instead of 10 that they do now. And of the five nominees for mm-hmm. Best Picture in 96, four of them were independent movies. You know, Jerry Maguire was the only one that was made from a mainstream Hollywood studio. Because the others were The English Patient, you had Fargo, Secrets and Lies, and Shine, all independent films. It was sort of the, that was sort of the peak. But yeah, independent movies. So I would say, so the 90s so far, what we're getting from is the independent genre and the rebirth of the horror film, the the death of the comedy somewhat, and a lot more um, disaster films coming back in. One other thing I would like to touch base on. And this has come up on the podcast many times before, and this is my sort of, uh, I don't want to say hatred, and maybe hatred's a strong word, but my disdain for CGI in film. You know, I, I, I guess, though, the CGI sort of really began with 89's The Abyss, right? With that water tentacle. But I would say, I think everybody kind of feels that the advent of CGI in film was probably Jurassic Park in 93. And funny enough, I still think it's the best CGI in a movie ever, still to this day. And... I, I will admit there's some good uses of CGI in movies, um, but they're, you know, like I say, good Jurassic Park, bad anything George Lucas has ever touched, you know, and, and also the Scorpion King. If you've ever seen that, that is just, oh, that's oh, so bad. God, so I bad. was going to make that joke. <laughs> but yeah, but the, but CGI in film really sort of got its start in the 90s, especially with with uh, with Jurassic Park, right? Mm-hmm. I don't know. So, I mean, so those are all, all of our conclusions. I tell you what I'd like to do, guys, if you don't mind. I'd like to get your opinions on some movies from the 90s, if I could. So how about if we do this? I'm going to just name a movie, 
And I'd just like to know your, your overall opinion on it and your take on it, okay? Sure. K-Ben, we'll start with you. Yep. Titanic. Hmm. What to say about Titanic? Mm-hmm. For the long time, it was the highest grossing movie ever. Cameron claimed that he couldn't make the movie before then because technology didn't exist to do what he wanted to do on camera, which we heard him say again when he made Avatar. I liked it. I didn't love it. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. See, I I think, like I say, I think Pulp Fiction is the best movie to come out of the 90s. Agreed. But the uh, I'm a big fan of Titanic. When it came out, I, I loved it. To me, Titanic is – Pulp Fiction and Titanic are at complete opposite ends of the spectrum because Titanic – is sort of that traditional to me that's gone with the wind for this generation it's an epic it's an epic unbelievable sweeping thing to go and to this day i don't care what anyone says the the special effects in that movie hold up they hold up it is just an unbelievable visual experience to watch titanic it's bigger than life it is unbelievable whereas pulp fiction on the other hand is just gritty and it's smaller it's independent it's like almost like 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 complete the antithesis of Hollywood filmmaking, you know, um, Yancey, what are your thoughts on Titanic? Um, I've only seen it once. Um, I felt like it lasted forever, but that's not like it's a knock on it. Um, it was very, very good. I thought that some of the scenes were amazing in it. Um, it, it's, I, I remember watching, I think I was like 12 years old. I, I literally haven't watched it in almost, you know, 17, 18 years, I think. But I can still remember so many scenes of that so vividly, just because like you guys said, it was so well done. Um, it, it like when I think of the 90s, honestly, like it's one of the first movies that comes to mind just because it's like it feels like such a time capsule movie. Yeah. Like I always think of like Titanic, Clueless, um, you know, like Saving Private Ryan. Like those are like the first couple of movies that always come to me. Um, it's not one of my favorite movies, but I mean, you have to respect like what they did with it. It's just I mean, it, it pushed it pushed special effects to like such a level. And everybody like all the other you know huge blockbuster movies that you saw come after that kind of like owes that to them because they kind of broke the mold as far as being really, really inventive and just wowing audiences with their with their special effects. All right. Here's one. End of the decade. One best picture in 99. American Beauty. What's your take on it? Caveman. Loved it. Loved it, loved really? it. Can't tell you how much I loved it. I, I went to see this in the theater I on did, the opening I did night. Well, yeah, I did too. Opening night, I got out of the movie. My wife and I went to see it. Walked to the movie. I turned to her and I said, "That's going to win the best picture." And she's like, "No." I, and I said, "Absolutely, without a doubt, that movie is going to win best picture this year." And she, she, you know, she enjoyed it, but she didn't think it was that good. And I called my parents and said. Mom, Dad, you got to go see this movie. It's going to win the Oscar this year. And my mom's like, oh, okay, my parents do not go to the movies very often. They usually rely on us to make a recommendation. So they went to see it the next night. They both hated it. They were so angry that I recommended they go see this movie. My mom almost was, she was like, I think you owe us a free movie because we wasted our night on this because you said so. And it was terrible. And I realized that it was sort of – I'd reached a point in my life where this movie spoke to a certain audience – and my parents were not a part of that demographic. It was, it was, you know, a slice of life of America at the time. This is what this is, you know, a, tr- uh, a, a somewhat true, accurate portrayal of things that could or probably were happening. And I don't think that my parents, with a very conservative outlook, could wrap their heads around these kinds of things happening in society at all, let alone at that point in their life. But no, I loved it. I still enjoy it. I think it's great. It was nominated and won all sorts of awards up and down well deserved uh i mean despite what we now uh, know about kevin spacey he did a great performance in the movie um 
I, I would have no problem sitting down and watching it right now. Love no, it. See, I, I would certainly watch that than Titanic if given the choice. Wow. See, I when I think back on like I'm a big Oscar fan, and when I when I think back on the Oscars, I, I think of American Beauty as one of the worst pictures to ever win Best Picture. I, I don't think it should have won that year. I thought the success was so much better as a, as a film. Uh, Yancey, have you ever seen American Beauty out of, by curiosity? Because 1999 is like your favorite year for movies. So I'm just. I have seen American Beauty. Um, what are your thoughts? This is this is one of the movies when I first got married. My wife's like, wait, you haven't seen American Beauty? Like, please go watch it. Um, so I did. Uh, again, I'm. It, it's hard to be critical and not sound like you completely hate a movie. I don't hate it, but like you, Chris, I don't think that it was worthy of all the accolades that it got. Just especially considering the fact that 1999 was such a strong class of movies to begin with. Um, it is a weird movie, and um, like Kevin, you just mentioned, like yeah, I could watch it again today and like have no issue with it. For me, it's really hard sometimes for me to parse the artist from the art. And this is one of those perfect examples, like a predatory, like middle aged man who's like lusting over a high school, like cheerleader type girl. Um, that's that's pretty that's that's kind of like dead on arrival for me, especially like when you find out like what type of person he actually is in real life. Um, I don't know. Like I said, I, I understand that this is a piece of art and you're supposed to be able to parse the two and be objective about things. Um, but the, the, the premise of the of the movie uh, just just to start is. I don't know. It, it asks a lot of me that I don't fe- I don't feel like particularly comfortable in like just indulging in, if that makes sense. OK, Caitlin, what's your take on 1996's Independence Day? It was a fun movie mm-hmm. that I went to the theater more than once that summer to see. So this was I was away at university. This was, I think, the first or second summer that I was away from home, unsupervised as a young man living in my own apartment. I didn't have the burdens of, of class. I literally had the summer off. I had a part-time job and a lot of free time on my hands, so I saw a lot of movies that summer. And I must have saw that movie you know, three or four times in the theater. It was very entertaining. Uh, I enjoyed it. When it comes on TV and I see it, I'm like, oh, I'm going to watch this. Uh, it, it did, in my mind, it delivered what it promised. You're going to see this movie. They're going to fight aliens. Will Smith's going to be the hero, and he's going to get to fly a spaceship. And... Uh, you know, it, it, it hits all the right emotional notes when you just want to turn off your brain and be entertained. And it delivered. The effects were decent enough. It, you know, the movie certainly had its problems. The script wasn't great, but I got exactly what I expected every time. And I cheered at the end every time. Every time it comes on TV, I'm like, oh, and I watch it. And my wife is like, you're such a movie snob. How can you like this stupid, <laughs> stupid movie? But like you, there's something about it that is just unbelievably entertaining it's fun to watch that movie i like watching it i have a lot of fun yancey independence day what are your thoughts on it couldn't agree with you guys more i think it is a good bad movie Uh, i i I don't think Mm -hmm. like not everything has to be high art chris you and i used to argue about this all the time and like i basically like i acquiesce to the fact that like hey you know what sometimes some people just want to turn their brain off and like have fun and watch a dumb movie and this is that it's i think uh will smith is awesome in it i think he's you know, even now, like he hasn't had like a bunch of hits the last few years, but there was a period there where he was the highest paid actor every single year for several, several years. And deservedly so, like this dude is magnetic. He's super charismatic on, t- on you know, the big screen. Um, and like you said, Caveman, I-, I just remember being like a kid watching this the first time. And I know that it's like it's it's such a highly fictionalized like um, account of like aliens, you know, trying to invade Earth. But I cared so much. I knew it was bad and I knew it was corny and cheesy and like, you know, like the, the, the crazy, what's the crazy dad guy or whatever? Like, oh, yeah, Quaid, uh, um, Randy Quaid. Dennis, or, yeah, sorry. He's not Dennis Quaid. Jesus. Like, he's, <laughs> he's, he's legit crazy now, which I think makes like it all the more fun. Like, he's like a legit, 
like, you know, tinfoil hat kind of guy. Um, but this movie was just like, man, it was just like a lightning rod. It was so fun. Everybody watched it. I remember everybody talking about it. Um, just like the perfect summer movie. Like, I know yeah. that's kind of like easy and cheap to say, but like just a perfect summer blockbuster. And I wish... I wish that we had more like weird kooky movies like this that are like the movie of the season, the movie of the summer, as opposed to just like another comic book movie followed by another comic book movie followed by a comic book movie that introduces like more characters that are going to fight together in another comic book movie. Like, like I I love that this was original and it was its own thing. Okay. I've got one last movie, maybe the most controversial movie of the decade of the nineties, 1999. Yancy, you're in love and love 1999, but Kate, I'm going to start with you. 1999's The Blair Witch Project. I, I was just about to say, this has to be Blair Witch Project. So, Beyonce, have you seen Blair Witch Project? I have. Okay, good. So, um, if anyone hasn't seen it, I'm going to talk about it. Spoil, spoil, spoil. So, if you haven't seen The Blair Witch Project and you like thrillers, scary movies, horror movies, you got to go see it. Stop listening now and then come back and finish listening later. Okay, so, Blair Witch Project. Saw this in the theater on the first night. Knew nothing about it. Uh, and loved it. Loved it, loved it, loved it up and down. Got out of the movie, called my friends and said, we're going to the movie tomorrow night. And I went back the next night to see it with a group of people who had not seen it yet. And I watched them as much as I watched the movie to watch their reactions to what was going on on the screen. Because I felt that the movie hit you on all the right notes and caused such an emotional response. I was going to enjoy seeing their reaction to what was on screen as much if not more than what i saw on the screen the night before and it and it delivered in every sense that i thought it would and then working in the video store when it finally came out on video you know six months later a lot of people missed it when it came out in the theater they had heard that it was this hit but they didn't know a lot about it and since the 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 movie is all supposed to be hey we found this footage and and then they've released it as a movie and People came into the video store and they genuinely thought that's what it was. And we decided in our particular store not to correct that. We, if they thought it was real, we're like, oh man, yeah, this isn't for everyone. And and some customers, when they came back, were genuinely upset. Like, I can't believe that they made that. I can't believe that your company is allowing you to rent this movie. And then we'd come clean <laughs> and go, no, 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 it's fictionalized. But and they were like, but because they genuinely thought it was real. It, it provoked an emotional response that they probably wouldn't have had if they had, had understood right from the get-go that it was fake. Uh, I love the fact that this movie cost – I think they had a, a shoestring budget. I want to say like under a million bucks, uh, which I mean, hey, not that a million bucks is chump change by any stretch of the imagination. But to produce this kind of uh, quality filmmaking, it was unlike anything that had come out before it, and it spawned so much – imitation some of it good a lot of it bad a lot of it done for laughs it is a staple of 90s movies and i don't think you can talk about 90s movies and not at least mention it and and how it again pushed that independent film idea forward here's a fantastic like i think it made like 100 million bucks and they're like it cost a million to make it made 100 million bucks how can you not like that kind of return on investment okay studios pay attention every year flag a million bucks for two or three separate movies go you don't have to have a hit every time, but if you can get one Blair Witch Project, it's going to pay for all the rest of them, and you might get lucky. You might get more than one of them. So I'm anyway. going to th- throw some numbers at you, Kate. Man, the movie, the bu- the budget for the film was sixty thousand dollars, and the 60, box office, 000. the box office was two hundred and fifty million dollars. Wow, I was so off on both pretty, directions. Pretty like, profitable. Pretty yeah. profitable. Yancy, what are your thoughts on Blair Witch? Came out in your favorite year of movies, nineteen ninety nine. What do you think? 
I think the Blair Witch Project is awesome. And Chris, I, I think you of all people could appreciate the fact that there isn't CGI. There's very, very little editing. And this was, you know, we're talking about, um, you know, kind of like themes and, you know, things that solve resurgences and, and you know, trends and stuff like that of the 90s. Uh, the Blair Witch Project, the, the OG found footage film. And think about all the copycats that basically tried to capture that same idea of, you know, you know, people in like a disparate position, you know, and found footage and like you see what yeah. happened to them. Paran- the fact paranormal that, activity and all that yep, stuff. Yeah, You, you kind of know the you, you know what's happening to them. It's kind of like a foregone conclusion that this was found footage, a.k.a. like most likely all these people are dead. You know, so like all of a sudden after that, we, we saw like the advent of like, you know, the, all the paranormal activity movies and Cloverfield and, um, you know, like Diary of the Dead. And like there were a bunch of copycats that were kind of like this. And, um, you know, some of them, you know, have merit and some of them are, you know, pretty interesting. But uh, to its credit, how often do you see like a movie that's the first to do something and kind of remains on that pedestal as like the greatest of like a particular subgenre of of anything? And like it still is is up there. It's still a classic. And, um, you know, it. Most most of the scripting was completely ad lib. It was um, just people going out in the woods and and playing a part and acting like real human beings. You know that's something we keep saying tonight for like the third or fourth time. People talking and acting and interacting like real people would, and not actually being super scripted. And I think that's why it works so well. It's an awesome freaking movie. It really is awesome. I actually I'm I'm a fan of it as well. I saw it in the theater twice when it came out. I thought it was great. One of the things I like about it is it's minimalistic, as you mentioned. And you know we've talked before on this podcast, Yancy, about one of the things I like about Jaws is the fact that it's what you don't see in the movie that scares you and that's what I liked about this. It's what you don't see anything. It's what you don't see that's that's terrifying. In the end of the movie when the guy's standing in the corner, it's like it's terrifying. You don't see oh the witch, but she's making him stand in the corner like, oh my god, it's so scary that it's yeah. just oh, it's terrifying and I I actually like this movie. It, got, it was very controversial because it got a lot of criticism and stuff but me personally, I'm with you guys. I thought it was great. So I just like to go around um to each of it, you know, again, K-Ban, we'll start with you. What are some of your favorite movies of the 90s and why? Uh, so I won't repeat ones we've already talked about, but sure. I, I feel that th- this has to be talked about tonight. Boogie Nights, 1997, Paul Thomas Anderson, yes, Boogie Nights. God, it was good. Uh, unfortunately, this week we lost Burt Reynolds. Uh, I believe he died of a heart attack. He was in his 80s. 81. He was yep. eight. Thank you. Uh, a great actor, appeared in some of... Arguably some of, you know, the best movies of the 70s. Smoking the Bandit, for sure. Cannibal Run was great. Uh, Chris, you and I texted back and forth about this, and we were just rhyming off our favorite Burt Reynolds movies. But Boogie Nights, for me, um, is a great movie all around. As much as I've often, I've actually said that I believe Pulp Fiction is a perfect movie, Boogie Nights, to me, is like right behind it. It is great. Uh, it, the only criticism I have is that maybe it's a little bit too long. Oh, my, my, my. It's a no movie. pun intended. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you look at the cast, Boogie Nights, and it's a star-making vehicle for all of them. Like, almost everybody who was in that movie was has been nominated for an Oscar. Some of them for their performances in that movie. Paul Thomas Anderson, the director, for directing that movie. It is so good. You have so many great actors is sort of at the start of what are becoming fantastic careers and this movie just it, it i mean i can't say enough good things about it it's i mean obviously given that it's about uh you know the 70s uh, porno industry it's not going to be for everyone you're not going to want to sit and watch it with your mother i wouldn't think just given the subject matter but uh it it is a fantastic film and i can't say enough good things about it anything else any other movies that uh, you wanted to mention that are your uh, favorites Heat, 1995, Ooh, Michael Mann. There's Heat. a good one. Love it. 
first time you get Pacino and De Niro in a movie in the same scene together. Um, I love it. it. There's another one that has great dialogue. Uh, Michael Mann started in TV, moved into movies. Like he knows how to tell a story. He knows how to do pacing. Uh, he's got his own unique uh, camera style. Like when you're watching a Michael Mann movie, there is no doubt it's a Michael Mann movie. Um, and this one to me, like I'm not usually a cops and robbers kind of genre, not usually my thing, but again, I've got a list of my top 20 favorite movies and uh, like heat, I think ranks in there like number five, number six, boogie nights, right around the same place. Those are definitely two staples. Um, Shawshank Redemption. We only mentioned it for a second, but I think, Almost everybody who listens to this podcast probably loves the Shawshank Redemption, I would think, I would hope. So I don't think we really have to go into uh, too much on that. And I think all my other favorites we've really already touched on. So. Okay, Yancey, what are you some of your favorite movies from the 90s then? Um, obviously The Matrix. Of course. Uh, all the animated movies like Aladdin, Lion King, Toy Story. I'm not saying that to be funny. Like I literally think that they're like amazing pieces of art and it takes a special type of creativity to appeal to both adults and children and it'd be funny and appropriate for both age groups. That is like a, an art form that is not talked about enough that is incredibly hard to do. Like, you know, like watching Finding Nemo for the first time and you go with an audience that is filled with a bunch of kids and all their parents and their and their parents are like in tears just crying because it is so clever um that's that's something that's really really special uh boogie nights is awesome it's i wouldn't know if i would put it like as one of my favorite movies but um i was late to that uh caveman i was like maybe five years ago when i watched it for the first time um because like you said um you know kind of conservative parents not something that they were uh like privy to like just let us watch as like teenagers and stuff but um so yeah late to that I remember watching Saving Private Ryan for the first time, and it was so haunting, just like Schindler's List, too. Those were, like, the most, like, visceral, like, that made war real to me, those two movies. You know what I mean? Like, all of a sudden, I realized, like, wow, this is awful. This is what human beings are capable of. And this is just a movie. This isn't even, like, the realest of the real. Um, And, of course, like, probably the consensus uh, best movie of the 90s, Miss Doubtfire. Are you kidding me <laughs> yeah, right. i wasn't sure if that was part of that 90s humor i don't get or not yeah, did, I, exactly. did i lose you guys <laughs> <laughs> oh man um so i'll mention a couple ones too like obviously pulp fiction and jurassic park are like big ones for me um save it private ryan i'm glad that you mentioned because i remember when i was a, a, a little boy my grandpa used to tell me about the war he wouldn't tell me like awful stories and stuff obviously but he would tell me a little bit about the war and so my, my grandfather just as an aside was um was stormed the beaches of normandy uh with the canadian troops and obviously lived to tell about it. I wouldn't be here, but um, he would tell me a little bit about it. And I would think, and I would even say to him, grandpa, that's, it's not true. Like, there's no way that happened. I can't believe that was true. And years later he died. And then years later I watched uh, Saving Private Ryan and I just cried like a baby at the beginning of the movie because I was like, oh my God, it, it was just so real and so visceral. Like I just, oh, I couldn't believe it. So that's one. I would say that there was um, three three ones that stand out for me, a drama, a comedy, and an independent film. The independent film was Waiting for Guffman. came out in 1996. I've mentioned before that I loved um, uh, Spinal Tap. Yancey, I made you watch it on the podcast. Because of the popularity of Spinal Tap, Christopher Guest got to make another, a couple other movies. And one of them was called Waiting for Guffman. And it's about this small town that decides to put on a play. And then this guy, he's a director and he wants to take it to, to Broadway. It's small, silly movie. But if you've never seen it or never heard of it, watch Waiting for Guffman. It's great. The comedy for me, like I said, comedy kind of died in this decade. But one that stands out that, that, that just gets me and it's just, oh, it's so fun. It's so fun to watch. And, and I'm not a big fan of Jim Carrey. I, I have I hate I hate to admit it. I'm not his biggest fan. Well, have have we have we talked about this on the show? 
Uh, I don't know if we've actually mentioned it on the show. No, that that's, a, that's honestly, Chris, that's one of you like your hotter takes. Yeah, I, I know. I, I know he's Canadian and everything like that. I used to like him on uh, In Living Color, but his film career, things like uh, uh, like Ace Ventura and stuff like that, I didn't really like. The Mask was pretty yeah. good. But this movie, I thought, was the perfect vehicle for him, and that was 1997's Liar Liar. Yeah. Chris, uh, I can stop you. Yeah, I 100% agree with everything. I'm like you. I liked Jim Carrey when he was on In Living Color. Have not been a fan of his film career at all, except for Liar Liar. There's something about it is the perfect vehicle for him because it, it it's it's it allows him to be improvisational and manic, but it also con- constrains him. I think maybe because it's the fact that he's playing a lawyer. I don't. There's something that just kind of keeps him grounded somewhat, so he doesn't go off. Like to me, Ace Ventura is just unwatchable. Like it's just it's just out of control. Out of, uh, it's not even watchable. But this one is funny. It's manic. It's a lot of fun to watch. So liar, liar. And this one might surprise you, but it's from 1991, and it's my girl. I, it it just feels so 90s to me. This movie, but it's a really really good movie. And to me. This movie explores all the themes that a movie should. It explores things that, that, that make you look at humanity. It, it's it's funny. It's got some touching moments to it, but it's also really, really deep and profound, and it's really about friendship. And so I always like that movie a lot. And it's one that I'm, just, I'm still waiting because my kids are still a bit young, but once they get old enough, this is a movie that I can't wait to show them and then sit down and talk about afterward. I think it's an important movie. I think it's an overlooked but important movie from the 90s. So that's kind of my take. But I will say also, of all the best movies that we talked about, I got to give a shout out to the worst movie from the 1990s. And that is, in 1999, The Phantom Menace is the worst movie to come out of the 1990s. So I did have to definitely mention that one. Anyway, time now, guys, to play some fun with Yancey. Okay, so guys, what we're going to do, we, we do, you know, trivia and stuff. You know, you, you know you've been on the show enough, caveman, to know how this works. So yep. what I decided to do is I thought we'd have some trivia this week. And um, as you know, like I mentioned before, I'm a big fan of the, the Oscars. I like the Oscars. You know the Oscars as well. So I thought that I'd do some 90s Oscars trivia with you guys. Okay? Only movies from the 90s, Oscars. And I'll just, I'll, I'll ask some questions and just throw it out there. Okay? And I'll keep score. Okay, and then we'll see who has the best score and whoever has the best score uh, gets to come up here to Canada with me and play an entire game of Escape from the Death Star. (laughs) (laughs) All expenses paid. All expenses paid trip to come to to Barrie, Ontario and to come in here in my basement and we're going to play Escape from the Death Star. So, uh, So there's a lot at stake here, Yancey. So, you know, I'll be paying for tickets for you to get up here. So, man, I got to make these really hard so Yancey doesn't get them. Um, okay, so are we ready with some 90s Oscar trivia? Here we go. Okay, so Titanic, we mentioned that on the podcast today. It won Best Picture in 1997. But what was the winner of Best Song that year? Candle in the Wind. No. My Heart Will Go On. Yes, it was the song from Titanic. I thought it was an easy one. My Heart Will Go On. Okay, that's one for K-Ban, zero for Yancey. Uh, thank God, I don't want to pay for his flight up here okay uh <laughs> this trilogy saw all three of its films nominated for best picture including this entry in 1990 what trilogy saw all uh, three nominated for guess. best picture yes, terminator any, uh... terminator would be incorrect yancy I'm, I'm gonna guess godfather it is the godfather yes the godfather part three uh part in 1990 three was 1990 that, i thought it was the 80s that's why i wasn't sure the original the one best godfather, picture in 72 godfather comes up so much god mm-hmm. i really need to watch the godfather movies oh man just I'm definitely the first two buddy don't waste your time with the third one no the third one is not worth watching but the original like i say one best picture in 72 and godfather part two one best picture in 74 okay 
uh, a nominee for Best Actress in 1990. This actress was the highest paid female actress of the decade. Can you name her? Sorry, of the 90s? Yep. Who was the highest paid female actress of the 90s? She was a nominee for Best Actress in 1990. Can you give us a hint? I think I know. Did she go on to win an Oscar in the early 2000s? She did. Nancy, any guesses? I mean, I'm going to say like a Julia Roberts. Oh, Nancy gets a point. Yes, it was Julia Roberts. Congratulations. Was it really? Yep. 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 Pretty woman. That's right. Okay. uh, In the 90s, this actor became only the second person ever to win consecutive Best Actor Oscars. Who was he? Tom Hanks. That's correct. Came in. Uh, I'll tell you what. I wasn't giving you that one. I was taking it. (laughs) Go for it. Because he he, he won Best Actor for Philadelphia 93 and Forrest Gump in 94. So uh, as I just mentioned, Hanks, he became the second person ever to win consecutive Best Actor Oscars for a two-point bonus. Can you name the first actor to win consecutive Best uh, Best Actor Oscars? Did not take place in the 90s. I, I've heard this question before, and for the life of me, I want to say Spencer Tracy, but I don't think that's correct. Spencer Tracy is correct. Captain Courageous oh, in 37 and Boys Town in 38. All right. Oh, this is good. This is going sa- to save me some money paying for his flight up here to play uh, Escape from the Death Stars. This is great. Uh, okay, so, so throughout the whole decade of the 90s, Martin Scorsese, one of our greatest directors of all time, he was only nominated for Best Director once in the 1990s. Name the movie that he was nominated for. I'm going to disagree with the premise of the question because I don't think that's right. It is. <laughs> the narrator says it is. <laughs> it's correct. <laughs> I disagree heartily. Okay. Yancy, you got any guesses before I, I try to correct Chris? Um, Not a guess, just like a comment that, I mean, I hope you did your stretching because you're carrying me the entire segment. So, <laughs> um, well, See, I know if it's only one, it's either Goodfellas in 1990 or Casino in 1995. And I was fairly certain Casino got nominated. But now that you're saying it's only one, I've got to think it was Goodfellas. So I'm going to go with Goodfellas. It was Goodfellas in 1990. In Casino, he got nominated for, I believe it was for the screenplay, but not for Best Director. Oh, okay. That's why. Miramax, we mentioned them earlier. Okay, so they obviously had a really dominant run in the 90s and basically took over Hollywood, right? Um, But when it came to winning Best Picture Oscars, they only took home two statues in the 1990s. Can you name either one of Miramax's two Best Picture winners from the decade of the 90s? Gentlemen. Mm. Um, No, I don't think I can. <laughs> Yancy? I can think of lots of movies that they were nominated uh, for other awards for, but. Yancy, oh. any Miramax pictures to win Best Picture in the 90s? Two of them won. Can you name one? I'm I'm going to go with Home Alone. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, you. I'm going to take a guess. If, if, uh, take a guess. Take that a guess. Miramax, Miramax, Miramax. Okay, so I know they did Goodwill Hunting, but Goodwill Hunting didn't win Best Picture. Um,. And I, I'm sorry. Time's up. Yeah. It was the English Patient in '96 and Shakespeare oh in Love in '98. What was the one in '98? Shakespeare in Love. That's right. They okay. totally did Shakespeare in Love. All right. So, final question: What actor received the most Oscar nomination? Or most Oscar nominations in the decade of the 1990s? Oh 
Good question. When you say actor, does that mean that it is a male or are you grouping actors and actresses? It is a male, a male actor. So what male actor received the most Oscar nominations in the decade of the 90s? Tom Hanks feels like it would be too chalky and that was already a trivia answer. So it has to be. I think that might be the answer. Is Uh, is that your answer, Caveman? Speaking of the 90s, is that your final answer? Yeah, I'm going to let Yancey decide if he wants that pick or not. Um, I feel like it's too chalky and I stand to lose nothing here because everybody already knows that I'm a moron. So I'm going to go off the board and I'm going to say, and I can't even name another actor. <laughs> Do you want yeah, to I'm going to say Tom Hanks because I can't think of anybody. Else. In that no. case, if, uh, since we don't want to have the same answer, I'm going to say Jack Nicholson. Okay, you'd both be incorrect. It was Anthony Hopkins got four nominations. Really? Yes. He got a uh, nomination for Best Actor for Silence of the Lambs in 91. Best Actor Remains, Remains of the Day in 93. Nixon in 95. And Best Supporting Actor for Amistad in 97. Oh, so yeah. Amistad. Yeah, I totally Anthony forgot that. Hopkins. That's the Trotten Spielberg movie that nobody's ever seen except me. Okay, so Caveman takes over the prize with six. And Yancey, you had one. Caveman, you and I will be getting together shortly. We will talk about this off the air about when we can get together and play Escape from the Death Star. And uh, that'll be just wonderful. I'm looking forward to that. Um, in the meantime, Whoa, Caveman won trivia. What an upset. <laughs> <laughs> wait, wait, wait. You're telling me the guy you brought on to talk about a specific topic got all the trivia questions for that topic? That's crazy. It's called, you, it's called fun with Yancey for a reason. We messed with mean, him. You mean to tell me the guy that wasn't too during these trivia questions got more questions correct whoa <laughs> wow. oh brother well like i said you can ask me questions about the 70s i was two at the time and i can probably do good um but that's like i say it's fun with the antsy we, we just mess with you so i we I, we almost call it messing with the millennial that's the better title for this segment um so before we uh, before we wrap things up obviously i want to uh to give a shout out to uh to you caveman do you want to let people know uh, where they can get in touch with you online Sure. Uh, I'm on Twitter at Amron underscore DM. That's like Cameron without the C, A-M-E-R-O-N underscore DM. Honestly, I'm not on Twitter as much as I used to be, but uh, I do check it uh, periodically. Uh, if you really want to reach out to me, you can try and friend me on Facebook. I really don't care about my privacy, and I accept everyone's friend requests. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and you can obviously reach Yancey on Twitter at Yancey Eaton and myself at C. McBride. Yancey, before we go, next week, what I'd like to do is I'd like to throw a Gen X movie at you that I want you to watch before we come back on our next show. And on our next show, we are going to pick apart the movie and we're going to review it together. Are you ready for this challenge, my friend? I mean, yeah, I guess. <laughs> the, the enthusiasm just it from the trivia whatever. Yeah. the enthusiasm <laughs> with which he throws things he's just pissed because he doesn't get to come up to Canada and play Escape from the Death Star with me I just I'm for real there was a small part of me that was like free vacation I'm down you know yeah. <laughs> until he gets here and, and, and there's snow on the ground and then we're spending all of our time playing Escape from the Death Star with a bunch of missing pieces you know of course there, there would be a catch where like you literally sent me to like the Arctic in like the middle of January or something <laughs> exactly Exactly. You know, that's what everyone's perception of Canada is anyway. So there you go. You're from Florida. You wouldn't know the difference. Okay, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go back. We've mentioned uh, comedies. You know, on the show, we've mentioned romantic comedies. We've mentioned John Hughes. I want you to go back and watch what I would consider to be a staple from Gen X, and that's 1984's 16 Candles. Are you ready, Yancey, for a good one? You're going to go back. You're going to watch 16 Candles from 1984. Next show, we're going to come back and we're going to talk all about it. You up for the challenge? 
I'm up for it. Mentioned this before, 1984. Nice. I have a love affair with that year just because nice. it's when my parents graduated high school, and it's Perfect. also the year they got married. So, like, it's I've never seen it. Um, I hear people referencing it all the time, so I'm down. Let's it do is it. it is a Gen nice. X staple, like I said. So it should should definitely be a good one. But I, I will caution you, Yancey. Much like when you watch Revenge of the Nerds, and like you mentioned earlier tonight, Sixteen Candles is great. It's got a lot of quotable lines that you'll be like, "Oh, that's where that's from." But there's a lot of humor that is not kosher by today's standard oh, definitely whatsoever. Not. And it's very yeah. dated too, I think, but it's oh, very still, dated. I'm curious to know if it holds up. That's the main thing that I want to know, because I think a lot of Gen Xers that listen to the show love that movie. You know, it, it holds a special place in their heart. I was thinking about giving them Caddyshack. Okay, man, hmm. I was thinking about making them watch Caddyshack and I thought, oh, I don't know. I'll get them to that one at some point. Like I say, uh, that's one of uh, Caveman and I's favorite movies of all time. But uh, but we'll watch 16 Candles. We'll come back and we'll do that. And then we'll go from there. So again, if you're interested in reaching out to us, you know, connect with us on Twitter at C. McBrien or at Yance Eaton or go to the website, popgoesyourworld.com. All of our information is there. Until next time, on behalf of Caveman and Yance Eaton, this is Chris McBrien saying thanks for listening to Pop Goes Your World, the pop culture podcast for the generations. Thank you for listening to the Pop Goes Your World podcast. Continue the conversation on Twitter at C. McBrien or at Yancey Eaton. Please consider leaving a review for the podcast on iTunes or wherever you download and listen to the show. 